program to kill satanic cover -up. Charles Joseph Whitman was described by many as the all-American boy. Growing up in Lake Worth, Florida, he became an accomplished piano player at the age of 12 years and three months, the youngest Eagle Scout in the world. He was also a crack shot with many of the rifles that filled the Whitman home. His accomplishments, however, came at a cost. Charles Whitman's father, C.A. Whitman, was a stern disciplinarian and frequently beat his wife and children for the smallest transgressions. After a night of drinking on his 18th birthday, Charles was beaten and thrown into the family pool by his outraged father. The next morning, Charles Whitman joined the Marine Corps. Used to tough discipline and familiar with firearms, Charles excelled on the rifle range and achieved the rating of sharpshooter. Soon, the superiors recommended the young Marine for an engineering scholarship, and in the fall of 1961, Charles Whitman was admitted to the University of Texas. Once enrolled, Charles met the woman who would become the love of his life. Kathleen Leisner entered the University of Texas as a beautiful young woman from South Texas. Their courtship was quick, and on August 17, 1962, the two young lovers were married in Kathy's hometown church in Needville, Texas. Once back in Austin, Charlie quickly fell into academic trouble, lost his scholarship, and returned to the enlisted ranks of the Marines. His second experience was nothing like his first. Missing his wife and eager to return to Austin, Charlie fell into trouble, spent time locked up in the brig, and as soon as his enlistment was up, returned to Texas and re-enrolled in the university as an architectural engineering student. Eager to finish, Charles took a heavy load of courses, but soon complained of headaches and had trouble concentrating on his studies. As a freshman in 1961, Whitman had remarked to friends that the university's main building, the tower, was a perfect fortress in which one man could hold off an army. In the summer of 1966, Charles Whitman's thoughts returned to the tower and its potential as the perfect sniper's nest. This is Neil Spelson, Red Rover, on the University of Texas campus. This is a warning to the citizens of Austin. Stay away from the university area. And there is a sniper on the university tower firing at will. It's like a battle scene. It's like, there's another shot and another shot. There are two different kinds of shots. Apparently, police are returning the fire now. Gordon Wilkerson is watching the man through telephoto lens on his camera, getting the shots and watching and sees the person there. Gordon, is it possible to describe the person? What color shirt is he wearing? Uh, is he a light shirt? You can't tell about his hair, whether he's a dark-haired person or not. Is he wearing glasses? Is he light or fair-skinned? From this distance, Gordon Wilkerson reports fair skin. He was typing some letters to a few friends, and we just sat down. We had a, a very normal conversation with him, like nothing out of the ordinary that we've ever had with him before. And uh, he seemed to be in, uh, in fine spirits.
wasn't himself Sunday night as, as calm and as collected, as personal as he seemed to be. There were several things that, that just didn't add up to what he'd always been. quite recognize him. I, I guess now I, I, I think he was in a state of shock at the time. It's fairly reasonable, but he looked uh, extremely distraught when I saw him in the library. Charles Whitman, a former U.S. Marine sharpshooter who had received training by the Naval Enlisted Science Education Program, NESEP, the NESEP an intelligence entity, ascended the tower at the University of Texas at Austin and unleashed a barrage of firepower on the unsuspecting campus. By the time it was over, Whitman and 14 others lay dead and another 31 victims were wounded. shooting spree lasted for 96 minutes. Firing with uncanny accuracy, he picked off 15 victims in the first 35 minutes alone, with shots coming at various times from all four sides of the clock tower. So many shots were pouring out of the sniper's nest at times that many witnesses on the ground assumed there were multiple gunmen. created that impression using an arsenal which included a carbine, a sawed-off shotgun, a 35mm rifle, a 6mm rifle with a telescopic sight, and several handguns. He lashed one rifle to the railing and would quickly fire off around, then hurry back to a second rifle and fire away, making it appear there were two gunmen up here. The police sent an airplane with a, a sharpshooter to shoot at him, put a shot at the plane, hit the plane a time or two, so they went away. But they were able to determine as they circled around the top of the tower that there was just one person doing all that damage. The night before the rampage, Charles had killed his wife and his mother along the with writing two notes. Although it was his violently abusive father whom he pronounced in his notes that he was said to have an intense hatred for. Whitman also left a note which read, I don't quite understand what is compelling me to type this. I have been to a psychiatrist. I have been having fears and violent impulses. Along with that note, he reportedly left a roll of exposed film with instructions to develop it after his death.
Leonard Kressel, an engineering professor and Charles's former academic advisor, said on record, I had seen him many times, and I never saw a dilation of his pupils. If he did use drugs, he didn't use much. In a statement to Austin Police, Larry Foss wrote, I personally never saw Charles J. Whitman take drugs to stay awake. I was aware that he carried a bottle of medicine, but I do not know for sure what was in it. Police reports showed that at the time of his death, Whitman was carrying some pills. From Whitman's personal diary, the daily record of C.J. Whitman, we know that these pills were Dexedrin, which was one of the very first psychiatry's mass-marketed drugs. Dexedrin has properties very similar to methamphetamine. It can cause psychosis, and it can also cause headaches. Richard Speck murders and the Texas Tower Sniper murders took place just weeks after Anton LaVey had formally established the Church of Satan and declared April 30th, 1966 to be the first day of the Age of Satan. Whitman's rampage occurred on August 1st, Lamas, Satanic holiday on the occult calendar. The face of a particularly brutal criminal enterprise masquerading as a religion was beginning to emerge from the shadows and its effect on American society would be profound. As the New York Times observed 33 years later on the occasion of the reopening of the tower's observation deck, the Whitman attack marked a new and different terror that anyone anywhere could be killed at random. As the Times also noted, this new and wholly manufactured threat prompted many police departments to develop the first of many SWAT teams. America was under siege.
ghastly incident remains why he did it, but we talked about SWAT teams that came about as a result of this. As a direct result, Barbara, the first team that uh, developed was the Los Angeles Police Department. I'm a fanatic about guns myself. I have quite a few of them. I raised my kids with guns. I raised him with guns to know how to handle guns. He was an A student in high school. He's a young man that has pushed himself tremendously in the last few months to make grades that far succeeded anything that could be did. And I think he came to the breaking point. I don't feel like that I know the Charles Whitman that they found up on the uh, university tower. And the one that I knew was kind and gentle and good, and I think I'll try to remember him that way. Lake Worth, Florida, July. John M. Whitman, 24 years old, whose brother killed 16 persons in the University of Texas Tower incident, was shot to death after a quarrel at a bar here last night. Charles Joseph Whitman was also 24 in August 1966 when he murdered his mother and wife, then climbed the clock tower at the University of Texas at Austin and killed 14 other persons before being shot and killed himself by police. A Lake Worth police sergeant, Bill Openshaw, who knew the family, said that John Whitman went to the bar last night after a day of studying for examinations. There were a lot of kids in the bar, Sergeant Oppenshaw said. An argument broke out. We don't know over what. We don't know whether Whitman was involved or just an innocent bystander. James J. Giroux, 23, of West Palm Beach, suffered a bullet wound in the chest. He was reported in good condition after undergoing surgery at a local hospital. But what would she say? Reframing domestic terror in the 1966 UT-Austin shooting. That's the University of Texas, UT. This article reconsiders canonical documents of the UT shooting in light of newly discovered personal letters composed by Whitman's wife, Kathy. Close reading of personal text can help illuminate the gendered nature of public spectacle and make room for understanding as well as recognize not always speakable sources of domestic terror. And you can find that on programtokill.net in the forum. Highly recommend going to his website and signing up for that. I have followed Program to Kill for a long time. Excellent content creator. And definitely some very interesting food for thought in regards to a, a side of this case you will never, ever hear on the mainstream news. And it's greater connection in context to a surge of unprecedented mass violence associated with the founding of the Satanic Church in 1966 that also falls on satanic and occult holidays of various pagan origins, 
that are listed on various calendars of traditional um, traditional loyalties. Wicca, Druidic, uh, Mithraic, you know, uh, Apollyon calendars, etc. Holidays which are completely unknown to the majority of the public around the world, but are still practiced to the extremity by very select elements of society, legacy elements, ancient cults, families, etc. You couldn't see the visuals of several of the interviews, especially the last uh, soundbite provided by the father of Charles Whitman um, as it happened in 1966. But as he gave his personal testimony, he was being obviously coached and guided by a Catholic priest or a Jesuit given that this family was deeply, deeply involved in Catholicism. Which we have already established on this program is is very much many times just the legacy of the evolution of these pagan societies that were first assimilated by Rome and then the dates and times constantly converted into the canonical um, you know Catholic calendars and and there were holy orders sacred saint days etc although the language has been radically changed and evolved to be almost not uh, indistinguishable like you know it's not the same at all not indistinguishable um, very distinguished, you know, very, very different, very unique, um, almost independent of its original names, places, locations, etc. And the core elements of those truths still exist. The, cru- the true alchemy of it still exists. And it's known to the select priest classes in the Jesuits because the Jesuits... Uh, the Catholics, they have libraries which are not available to non-Catholics and are written mostly in ancient languages like Latin, which they have uh, seemingly a monopoly over. Their connection to this cannot be understated, but it's also unresearched and not properly understood. Same with the um, research into this naval program that Charles Whitman was involved with. The NESEP program, having its roots and origins in the Office of Naval Intelligence, is very suspicious for all this, as well as the brain tumor the size of a pecan that wasn't actually connected to any vascular system, so it wasn't life-threatening, but has been over time associated with providing the, the pressures, the internal biological factors for causing his mental breakdown and resorting to this extreme amount of violence seemingly out of nowhere. This, this moment of insanity for someone who has such uh, positive uh, character references, including 
friends, uh, an honorable discharge within the Marine Corps. And yes, he might have gotten into some trouble while in a uniform, but who the hell doesn't? I mean, it's the real world. Most Marines would be in jail if they weren't in the Marine Corps. It's it's one of those true factors that you got to realize. I mean, anyone who's ever been, uh, you know, E E four or above knows that anyone E three and below is just uh, fucking around twenty four hours a day. Um, and it's like herding cats, you know, like they're going to be drunk driving. They're going to be getting into like uh, shit in town. They're going to be thinking about robbing people, like forming little criminal gangs, drug dealing, etc. Anyone says that doesn't, they never served in the military because that's just a fucking fact. Anyone who says that this shit doesn't happen, it doesn't fucking know because they never were enlisted in the military because uh, they could be officers or whatever, but they, they're completely naive and, and they're terrible officers in that case because... Um, you know, anyone knows that the enlisted are just real people, regular people who, after getting up, shit, being told when to shit, shower, shave, uh, getting up at fucking three or four a.m. to fucking PT in the mud and shit like that, they get pretty jaded pretty fast, especially when they're only assigned orders in their first tour. I guess you would call it like most of the fucking time, unless you're in absolute shit show war like Vietnam or something. And even then, it's very clear, it's very pronounced to know that. This was in 1966, and even though Charles Whitman was a master sharpshooter and excelled as a Marine, his two stations of duty were Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, Cuba, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, during the Bay of Pigs situation, Cuban Missile Crisis, yes, this was a much different uh, station, and it's still a very prestigious station to have in the Marine Corps, Um, but not Vietnam. Not fucking, you know, going into the bush, not fighting, not not actually going to war. Not like they show you in the movies with fucking, um, oh, you're in Full Metal Jacket, you're, you're in boot camp now, you're going straight to Vietnam. No, you're going straight to Cuba. Yeah, enjoy it. It's pretty nice, actually. Enjoy the canteen and say, like, you know, hang out. Weather's nice. Say, like, I mean, just... Like, you know, exactly, be on the lookout for Castro, but, like, you know, fucking U.S. Navy's been there for, you know, since the Spanish-American War. And it's kind of hilarious, because even during the time when the Castro took over Cuba, we didn't leave. They didn't fuck with us. Bay of Pigs and shit, didn't fuck with us. (laughs) And so, like, um, you got that. Then he goes to Camp Lejeune. Camp Lejeune is famous for its chemical water contamination, its pollution, and it's basically uh, treating its own employees like shit, or treating people like the Marine Corps enlisted uh, uniformed personnel who had to live there, you know, its own Marines like shit, and causing a lot of disease, not not recognizing their, their VA claims or anything. Uh, like I said, the mass contamination of water, which was proven to have happened and caused a lot of sickness within not only themselves but their families, um, yeah, so of course, you're getting up to some light gambling and some loan sharking, you know, the fucking least of his worries, right? The guy just wants to go home to bang his hot wife from fucking South Texas. And yeah, if you've seen the picture, she was fucking smoking. She was a total smoke show. Uh, but it's also famous. It's also, like, I have to keep pointing out, he met her through the NESEP program. He met his wife, this very beautiful woman from South Texas, during his time in the Naval Enlisted Science Education Program at the University of Texas, 
as she worked as a liaison between him and his paperwork. So this it's all this there are no coincidences. This glows. This glows in the fucking dark. And I'm just gonna hit it with my car. It's what you do. And if you're not familiar with this, look up Lieutenant Commander Thomas E. Narut. He was a U.S. Naval officer who was part of active operations where the Navy was programming and training convicted murderers to work as killers and government assassins. This program was accidentally exposed during a NATO-sponsored conference entitled Dimensions of Stress and Anxiety, which was held in Oslo, Norway in 1975. According to Naurut, the men selected by psychological profile tests or by evidence of past violence were taken for programming to the Navy's neuropsychiatric, neuropsychiatric Laboratory in San Diego, California, or to the Naples Medical Center, which employed Dr. Naurut. These, Naurut said, were hitmen and assassins. Naurut's actual words, made ready to kill in selected countries should the need arise. At 10.14, in the video, it states that Charles Whitman received training by the Naval Enlisted Science Education Program, NESEP, an intelligence, Office of Naval Intelligence Connected Entity. This sounds like a front for assassination programs and training of MKUltra, if ever I've heard one. The case is also very reminiscent to the um, Las Vegas shooting in which one man seemingly with no motive and a successful life goes berserk but before that accumulates an arsenal of seemingly way too many weapons but but intending to create one of the largest mass shootings, I guess you would need a personal arsenal. But also somehow maneuvers and positions this cachet of weapons, this armory, all by themselves. In this case, there were a lot of witnesses. But still, the idea of a hitman or, or an assassin or a mass shooter carrying literally a, a travel case's worth of weaponry up into a high position of shooting with the Las Vegas case being uh, no witnesses, not even security footage of this occurring. And yes, there is, no, there is no hard evidence that this happened. There is no hard evidence that he was only alone. There is no hard evidence that he walked and did exactly, like I said, there's no photographs of him at the security guard booth getting the pass. All we have are um, the low-level security guard's uh, testimony, whoever that was, if he was even real, um, and the cover story that he had brought the cases and then wore the coveralls and got up there, and a woman who saw... A man in coveralls asking for the elevator to be turned on and she and her doing it. Um, basically becoming an accomplice in this, whether, you know, completely unwilling but or un, unwitting. But at the same time, 17 people or, let's see, 14 people and, and however many wounded 
that happened during the tower for 96 minutes, almost entirely being on this woman's head, uh, you know, who, who inadvertently helped out this maniac, but her seeing nothing suspicious in his behavior or anything even out of the place in the situation. You know, I'm saying, like, it's not really her fault, but that just goes to show this guy wasn't frothing at the mouth. This guy wasn't speckled in blood uh, from the murdering his wife and, and fucking mother. Uh, he wasn't even sweating. He wasn't shaking. He wasn't nervous. He even said, thank you, and was very polite. And he said, you don't know how happy this makes me. Many times. And it's like, at what point does he cease to become human and start becoming a Terminator? And I think it was when he was in this Nesset program and they've been trying to blame the abuse of his father, which is strict, yes, and horrific, also, yes, but absolutely par for course when it comes to uh, the 1940s, 50s, and, and prior and beyond. Fathers have been beating their children, and, and particularly their sons and wives, etc., for fucking ever. And yes, we understand maniacs and psychopaths exist, and that's a big reason for it. You know, the reason why cowboys killed each other is because they grew up in extremely violent and fucked up and dysfunctional households. Sometimes even just being on their own as young as like single digit ages surviving on their own. And then, yeah, they grew up like Billy the Kid to be fucking psychopathic murderers with pistols and like. Uh, bank robbery, and they said they had they have no ability to simulate society without constantly seeking violence. Um, we understand that, but those people are also criminals. They're gang members. They're stuff like that. Like the idea of a this happening and it being a unique case um, because of the violence. Oh well, if he wasn't beaten, he wouldn't go to kill so many people. I mean, you would have the streets choked with corpses. You would have one of these mass shooting tower situations every day if you thought maybe even one in 100 of people who were beaten by their fathers in Texas, severely beaten. I'm not just saying like he spanked you because you were a naughty boy. Like I'm saying like in high school you were getting your ass kicked by your father because of various reasons X, Y, Z. Um, in Texas, if that was the case, you would have mass shootings every fucking day in every town across Texas. 100%. Every week would be a Texas Tower shooter or a guy walking into like HEB and just mowing people down all the time. So, I mean, it's terrible. I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying go beat your fucking kids. It's okay. No, that's terrible caveman barbaric shit. But in Texas, that's absolutely going on all the fucking time. People discipline their kids with their fists. What, the, what happens is you get a lot of badasses. You get a lot of hard-ass motherfuckers who can't feel emotions. And I don't mean like, oh, that's awesome. I mean, that's why it explains that. Like, if you ever just walk up to a random 40-year-old man and he's just staring off into fucking space and he looks miserable, and you're like, yeah, that probably explains that. Yeah, he didn't get the hugs he needed. He did, Yeah, exactly. That, that, that thick-necked son of a bitch ain't fucking, like, crying at movies, and he has no sensitivity to, like, animals. He's going out and killing deer. 
you know, and shit. Doesn't give a fuck. He just wants to meet. Exactly like that. That that's because of beating. But that's not like him going to fucking HEB with a machine gun and fucking oozing down people with a Glock. You know, mowing, mowing down people with a fucking Glock. Just murking people on the highway because of a traffic jam. And he's going crazy, like, because his dad hit him. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's, it, it sucks, yes. But realistically, people like heavy metal music. They get into drugs. It explains a lot of shit like that. Uh, it explains a lot of the gangs. Uh, you know, criminality, like crime. This guy would have been a criminal, not a family man going to college. Um, and for this being his first real breakout crime, why wouldn't he like start low, like just dealing drugs or stealing cars or, you know, being a hitman for hire because he could get out his aggression while making money as well as being better than people. It, to go to a tower on a suicide mission and annihilate strangers knowing you're going to be killed by the police because he's not a stranger to violence he's not like oh i'm going to surrender and get away with this he looked people person he looked he stabbed his mother and his wife he killed the people that he loved the most because he knew like burning his ships that there was no coming back from this so why why annihilate his life exactly even if he was beaten and hated his father why not kill his father why not um i think those were fake Letters. I think that was a fake story and a fake, uh, fake. Not not necessarily from nothing. It's not abracadabra. It's not something from nothing. But it's fucking um, hyped up, and it's hyperbole because they're trying to justify that by blaming toxic masculinity, which is toxic. I understand it's toxic, and no one should be your fucking kids. Child abuse is fucking terrible. Domestic abuse is fucking terrible, etc. But they're trying to say that's the reason. Then they're trying to say the brain tumor is the reason. And they're, what's, what's not being blamed, what's not being looked at, is the naval intelligence operations to make killers out of psychiatrically profiled potential maniacs and then to do things like put implants in their brains which at the time was a pioneer science and they couldn't necessarily figure out how to do it without the bodies rejecting the implants which were also gigantic by modern day standards there was no such thing as a, a microchip But there was hardware, and they'd stick that motherfucker right in brain uh, through through cranial surgery, which they could do. They could they could successfully perform brain surgery, yes. But microchipping people in 1966 was pioneering science. He was probably one of the first, and them doing it in the University of Texas also makes a shitload of sense because Texas, like I said before, has the most sophisticated and advanced computer laboratories in America that are directly tied into and controlled by the federal United States deep state government, specifically those connected to secret societies like the Freemasons, the CIA, the NSA, uh, the, the major alphabet agencies promoting the university systems, University of Texas, Texas A&M University, for its uh, Academics for its uh, uh, professors, for its you know like uh, mind, its intelligentsia, as think tanks, 
but also for its student body. Its student body, which is a perfect field for candidates, including volunteer for psychiatric and psychological profiling when they take psychology courses, etc. When they when they fill out their little um, little fun group, you know, activities, their fraternities, their sororities, their their college groups, their little friend circles. This is this is like you don't even have to try. This is these are perfect spies. These are perfect recruits. They're athletic. They're young. They're ambitious. They're intelligent. They're sexually active. They're 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 open-minded. They're they're eager to learn and to succeed and to please. And 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 they're retarded. They're fucking they're they're 18 to 22 year old kids. They're stupid as hell. They think they know the world and how it runs. That's what makes them so stupid. And then as the CIA or the Navy, oh my God, the Navy completely owns the University of Texas when it comes to all of its medical and psychological stuff. That's 100% what happened. Uh, Bill McRaven, the fucking admiral that controlled JSOC, the Joint uh, Strategic Operations Command, and former Navy SEAL, leader of the Navy during the global war on terror, runs the University of Texas <laughs> currently. He's currently the fucking dean of the University of Texas. Let me never underestimate, never, never understate and never underestimate the fact that Navy doesn't have to be on the water. It doesn't have to be on the ocean to exist. But it does exist all over the fucking place. No one even knows what the word Navy means. People just immediately think Navy means ocean. And it's also one of the mysteries. Like, I don't even know what the fuck it means, but apparently they're everywhere, and they're all over the place, and they rule everything. And it's just, I, like, exactly. The join the Navy Simpson subliminal message. <laughs> join the Navy. You won't regret it. Other people might, but you won't. And what else could you call it besides an assassination training program? The Hand of Death Cult in Florida Everglades is another paramilitary assassination group meant to invade Cuba or other Caribbean nations or defend from such invasions from the South. Now this is a, um, also relevant because Charles Whitman is originally from Florida. I know, you're going to look at me like, well, uh, yeah, but what a fucking small world that the two states that he lived in, Texas and Florida, both have Hand of Death Cults associations, plus this huge Navy outreach program. Navy's huge in Florida, Navy's huge in Texas, and then you have um, his family both living in Texas and Florida, his father returning to Florida after a divorce, so he was Floridian. He wasn't a Texas asshole who uh, beat his kids. He was a Floridian asshole. He was a Florida man who beat his kids. And Florida is also completely owned by, you guessed it, the Catholic Church. The Catholics. The Jesuits. They're all up in that shit. And who do you think was training this hand of death cult? The Jesuit murders, uh, murderers, the assassins that have been operating for hundreds of years... Because the Catholics were kicked out of Cuba, which they fucking loved living in and ruling over, with the Mafia. And they were making billions of dollars in Cuba. And once Castro took over 
and had a change of heart and had finally found his heart and was like, no, I'm communist now. We're going to go Soviet Union. Fucking uh, both the CIA were pissed. The Catholic Church were pissed. They teamed up, created the Hand of Death cult. And it operated throughout the South. It was basically another evolution of the Knights of the Golden Circle. It was a bunch of Southern people who, through a bunch of practices of extreme racism and, um, and, and pro-American exceptionalism, were going to invade the Latin countries of Mexico, Central America, all the way down through South America, the Caribbean, etc., uh, making a full circle of American um, states, basically, that treated these Hispanic peoples, these Latin Americanized peoples, as second-class citizens close to slaves. And everyone laughs at that, but I'd say look at these people's leaders, look at these people's presidents, look at the Sandinistas, look at the Contras, look at all that shit, look at the cartels, and you tell me if they haven't actually done that. Pablo Escobar was a white motherfucker, wasn't he? Pablo Escobar was a Colombian who looked like a fat Polish Jew. He looked like he was from Israel. It's true. And you look at that shit, you're like, man, they really did. They really oppressed the fuck out of the South American, Latin American societies with their own people. You can just get a Spanish name. You can speak Spanish. You can be born in Colombia. But they were creating a society, as they always have, of extreme poverty and wealth inequality through violence, terrorism, and murder. And this, Florida and Texas, are both parts of the Golden Circle. Los Urbanas, the Colombian drug cartel, was also CIA trained and operated. One could go on naming countless other criminal groups propped up by the military. Everything that comes out of the ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, has an ulterior motive and is often geared towards killing. People don't understand why many times scientific studies will be conducted and then the results will come out rather unimpressive or canceled. You'll hear people say, why would they spend so much money only to find out it doesn't work? The reason is because the military pays for the research and the true results are kept top secret. The medical examiners claim that Whitman had a brain tumor. He may have. He may have had a something more. He had definitely been worked on by the Navy's psychiatric team and intelligence officers while at that University of Texas scholarship. It sounds like the Treadstone program fictionalized in the Bourne movies or in the actual TV show Treadstone. They love showing us truth through Hollywood movies and TV shows because they f control the media and they're confident they'll get away with it. All gangs throughout decades are not just a bunch of hoodlums running around the streets. They are actual creations from the very top. MS-13, the Crips, Bloods, etc., all the cartels, all of them, all American gangs, all international gangs, all mafias have orders from governments, intelligence groups, and militaries.
the fact that they reopened the tower to the public 33 years afterwards. No doubt was but a pure coincidence. Not anything to do with the Satanic Church, which was operated in 1966. That same year of that massacre. At the risk of triggering some people out there, Dr. Heatley, who was a psychiatrist for Charles Whitman, had a scandalous history, too, not being completely ethical, but now never being caught or uh, convicted for it, only investigated publicly. Researcher Rebecca Johnston confirms that Healy's career was marred by allegations of cronyism and corruption. His brother was the infamously iron-fisted Texas State Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman William S. Heatley. In 1964, auditors found that Maurice Heatley had been paid $40 to $50 more per hour than other psychiatric consultants for his work for the Texas Department of Corrections and the Texas Youth Commission. With a brother in the Texas Senate and psychiatric careers in the Department of Corrections and the Texas Youth Commission, getting paid 40 to $50 more per hour in 1964 than other psychiatric consultants in similar fields did. One can only assume that he was glowing working for the Texas Syndicate, the Freemasons, the Deep State, in connection with research to psychiatrically profiled people with violent or sociopathic tendencies that had been given um, over to the state or been captured and incarcerated for crimes against the state. Once again, a perfect drafting field for human guinea pigs and research subjects and controlling, modifying behavior typically of violent and dangerous attitudes. The control and psychological profile of antisocial minds, extremists, murderers, rapists, thieves, etc. The quote-unquote uncontrollable elements of society would be who the Navy is most interested in controlling and weaponizing or in neutralizing in populations. I know the news is full of shit. Whitman wouldn't have no logical reason to make it look like there were two shooters on that tower. 
The event was just another disgusting example of how the elite use fear to implement their orders. Whitman was MK Ultrad to go along with the mission. Then killed by another operative with him on tower while he looked for another target. A separate operative probably killed his wife and mother while Whitman unknowingly was doing his part on the tower. As his father sold him out by providing both his address, his mother's address, and his ex-wife's address to the press while the shooting was still going on. The crime scenes fully corrupted at that point. And Whitman fully made the patsy. And the man left holding the rifle. One of the suspects I have are the actual police themselves. Uh, Ramirez. Uh, Romero. And um, the off-duty police officer. And the, the man he quote-unquote deputized. As either being actors and that never happening are the people who actually did do that not being them with the man who shot Charles Whitman being the actual man to wave the white flag as reported they say erroneously by live media coverage at the time with the radio broadcaster saying the Sniper is now waving a white flag and surrendering. And that being the actual um, deputized civilian, not the police officer, the deputized civilian, who was not in police uniform, by the way, and who had killed Charles Whitman, probably with the sawed-off shotgun they found on the observation deck. For why would Charles Whitman bring a sawed-off shotgun to the observation deck? He was going to shoot from long range from a tower. And he wasn't, and he only used the sawed off shotgun to shoot people who happened to be on the tower at the time, potential eyewitnesses to this crime. The 14, uh, yeah, the 14 to 16 year old boy, the mother, the, 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 the people, the tourists who were leaving. When he put the barricade, they were on his side, so he shot them. Or were they silenced as potential witnesses? Maybe, maybe inaccurately, as they were survivors. Or are they two crisis actors, the ones that did survive? We will never know. We will never know. The story has been so saturated and controlled by narrative since it happened with live TV on the spot broadcasting this narrative as one of the first and most impressive of the uh, area of effect, both domestic realism, like the, the, the down-home nature of it, like the actual, like this was, this was now a real and sudden terror in everybody's lives because it could happen to literally anybody, as well as the scenery. It's, it's iconic. It's cinematic. It's brilliant. It's a stroke of master uh, deceit and traumatic psychological operations uh, for years to come, decades to come. We'd use it as the model on how to run one of these false flag 
uh, domestic terror operations like Project Northwoods and was probably even a forerunner of or a product of the Project Northwoods uh, mentality to create domestic terror with mass casualties to promote agendas after the Bay of Pigs fiasco failed, after the Havana invasion system fail, uh, fears failed, etc. They were using hand-to-death operatives to continue this this strategy of social control and engineering um, while covering their tracks with patsies. And it's very suspicious that John Whitman and Charles Whitman were the same age as uh, John Whitman was shot dead in a pub brawl, a, a bar brawl, in a university town in Florida. I mean, that is very suspicious. That sounds a cult. That sounds like a human sacrifice. Uh, within this family. Within this fucking family itself. The truth is we'll never really know exactly all the details, but we know it wasn't simply a product of child abuse. And we know that no matter how many people have researched this since this time, it's been almost 50 years since these shootings, no one has really come up with a satisfactory explanation with the ones the mainstream media going for just simply being a shrug of the shoulders and saying shit happens and that's why we have the SWAT teams and the militarization of police and the training of police snipers who are trained to shoot to kill effectively creating martial law and effectively making the nation a police state beginning the same year as the Church of Satan officially was created in 1966. The USA is satanic. The USA is the Church of Satan. Mystery Babylon. Absolutely. And these are its blood rituals, its human sacrifices performed on its holy days. This being on August 1st, Lamas on the occult calendar. Quick Wikipedia search brings up Lamas as Loaf Mass, known as Loaf Mass Day. That's the Christianized version of it. It's the first fruits of harvest 
with a loaf of bread that has been baked and a holy place for this purpose. Lamastad falls halfway point between the summer solstice and the autumn equinox. Arrives from the Gaelic festival Lunasad or Lunasa or Lunessa, a Gaelic festival marketing the beginning of the harvest season, an official holiday in Ireland. It is one of four Gaelic seasonal festivals, along with Sam Wayne. Embok and Beltane. It corresponds to the Welsh Gwil Ost and the English Lamas. It involves great gatherings, ceremonies, athletic contests, horse racing, feasting, matchmaking, and trading. an offering of the first fruits and a sacrifice of a bull and a ritual dance play. Lunasa is typically held on top of hills and mountains or other high places. It is Celtic neo-pagan currently. And the Puck Fair, the wild goat, known as King Puck, is seated on a throne. as the goat is the king of the harvest and the symbol of Lamas. The goat is known as Lu. Television News now presents a special program on today's mass murder in the capital city. Here is KTBC Television News Editor Neil Spells. Good evening. One of history's worst mass murders occurred here in Austin today. By official count tonight, 49 persons were hit by gunfire. There are 16 dead and 33 injured. It started last... On August 1st, 1966... Chaotic news reports filled the airwaves of the United States about a mass shooting taking place at the University of Texas. As the days wore on, more information emerged as to the shooter and the complete circumstances surrounding this event. It seemed as if no one could stop the madman. Eventually called the University of Texas Tower shooting, 
The highly trained lone sniper had, in 96 minutes, killed 15 people from distances of 500 yards and wounded another 31 before he was finally silenced by two brave Austin City Police Department officers in an epic gun battle that nearly cost them their own lives. The shooting would be the worst in American history until the San Isidro McDonald's massacre on July 18, 1984. But how and why did it happen? Who was Charles Joseph Whitman? What events in his life shaped his emotional development? What motivated him to randomly shoot strangers? Hello, I'm Colin Heaton, a veteran of the United States Army and Marine Corps, former history professor, book author, and welcome to this episode of Forgotten History. Charles Joseph Whitman was born on June 24, 1941 in Lake Worth, Florida, the eldest of three sons born to Charles Adolphus Whitman Jr. and his wife, Margaret Elizabeth Whitman. His father was born in 1919 and had been abandoned as a child and raised in a boys' orphanage in Savannah, Georgia. Despite this beginning, he ran a successful plumbing business with wife Margaret employed as his bookkeeper. Young Charles and his siblings endured a torturous yet financially stable childhood as their father was an abusive alcoholic and well-known in town for being a tyrant. In fact, one of the Whitman's neighbors, one Judy Falch, stated that she was unable to recollect the sheer number of times her own parents had called police in the 1940s and 50s in response to Whitman's father beating his wife, children, and family pets. Whitman was an extremely intelligent child, and he did well in school. He became a Boy Scout at age 11, becoming an Eagle Scout three months after his 12th birthday. In this achievement, he is reportedly the youngest Scout ever to earn this rank as fast as he did at that time and in the shortest time span. Graduating from St. Anne's High School in West Palm Beach in June 1959, Whitman graduated seventh out of a class of 72 students. Not long afterward, he and several friends became very intoxicated, and upon returning home, his father severely beat him and then threw him into the family swimming pool. Deciding to leave home, Whitman enlisted in the United States Marine Corps and was assigned to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where he was an outstanding Marine. In 1961, he was awarded a scholarship, approved and funded by the Naval Enlisted Science Education Program and enrolled in the University of Texas at Austin, which was one path to getting an officer's commission, and he studied mechanical engineering. The post-shooting investigation into his background brought many interesting things to light. Whitman was considered a friendly person by his classmates, with a good sense of humor, although tinged with a dark side. One of his fellow students, Francis Shook Jr., has said that Whitman once looked out of their dormitory window at the tower on campus and said to him, a person could stand off an army from the top of it before they got to him. While he was at the university, he met a fellow student, Kathleen Francis Leisner, and they were married on August 17, 1962 in St. Michael's Catholic Church in Needville, Texas, six months after their first meeting. They honeymooned in New Orleans. Whitman's seemingly relaxed attitude to his studies, probably from distractions, resulted in his scholarship being revoked for substandard performance. 
His new duty assignment was at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, where he would complete his enlistment. In November 1963, he was subjected to a court-martial after being caught gambling in the barracks and working as a loan shark to other Marines. Due to a lack of evidence and witnesses to testify, the charges were dropped and he managed to reach Lance Corporal before being discharged in December 1964. He and his wife returned to Austin, Texas in March 1965 and he re-enrolled back in school studying architectural engineering while his wife became a biology teacher at nearby Lanier High School. Also during this period, he managed to obtain his real estate license while taking a bold academic load of 12 to 15 semester hours. In March 1966, Whitman went to Florida to help his mother pack as she was leaving and divorcing his father after 25 years of abuse. Whitman even had a local policeman at the home in case his father became violent towards him or her as she was trying to leave, which, given his recorded history, was a very good idea. Dinner. It's... ...weight added to Whitman's personal life, and as a result of all the pressure he was experiencing, as well as frequent migraine headaches, he entered therapy with a campus psychiatrist named Dr. Maurice Heatley. This would be the only professional psychological help Whitman pursued. The investigation also showed that at 6.45 p.m. on July 31, 1966, Whitman typed the first of two notes. In these, he explained how and why he would kill his wife and mother prior to the shooting spree. Another revelation was that he was interrupted while typing these suicide notes by two friends named Larry and Elaine Puse. Both later stated that Whitman seemed particularly relieved about something, you know, as if he's solved a problem. And that, twice during the visit, Whitman had said, it's a shame Kathleen should have to work all day and then come home too, but he never completed his sentences. After a few hours, the fuses left, so Whitman could drive his wife home from her part-time job as a switchboard operator. It is believed that upon arriving at home, Kathleen Whitman went directly to bed. The post-event investigation also surmised that around 12.30 a.m., Whitman drove to his mother's apartment on Guadalupe Street near the university and stabbed her to death. He then covered her with the bed sheets and placed her on the bed, and then placed the second of the tooth notes upon a yellow legal pad beside her bed. He returned home around 3 a.m. and repeatedly stabbed his wife through the heart as she was asleep, and he also left the first note, which was handwritten. In both notes, he stated that he loved them both, but killed them to spare them the humiliation of his pending actions. In the note left with his mother, he stated that he wanted to alleviate her suffering after decades of abuse by his father. He also clearly stated his intense hatred beyond description for his father because of the years of physical and emotional abuse. What he did for the next few hours is unknown, but later, in the first morning hours, he stopped and rented a hand truck. He then drove to his bank and cashed several bad checks totaling $250, worth about $2,500 today, one from his own account and the other from his mother's account. At 9 o'clock, he drove to a hardware store and purchased a 30 caliber universal M1 carbine, a weapon with which he had become a sharpshooter in the Marines, two extra magazines, and eight boxes of ammunition. He told the cashier that he was going to Florida to hunt wild hogs. 30 minutes later, he drove to Chuck's gun shop, purchased four more magazines, six additional boxes of ammunition, 
a can of gun cleaning solvent, and then he drove to a Sears at Roebuck store where he bought a 12-gauge semi-automatic shotgun. Whitman then returned to his garage at home and sawed off the buttstock and barrel of the shotgun. He then placed all these items as well as cans of food, coffee, vitamins, dexedrine, excedrin, earplugs, three and a half gallons of water, matches, lighter fluid, rope, binoculars, a machete, three knives, a small channel master transistor radio, toilet paper or razor, a bottle of deodorant, a Remington 700 6mm bolt-action hunting rifle with a Leupold M8 four-power scope, and a 35 caliber pump rifle, a 9mm Luger pistol, a Galici Brescia 25 caliber pistol, a Smith & Wesson M19 357 Magnum revolver, and 700 rounds of ammunition into his Marine Corps footlocker. He was also dressed in blue nylon khaki coveralls over his shirt and jeans so that people would think that he was a janitor, a repairman, or a delivery man, or some other service person, so as to not arouse any suspicion when he arrived at the university at 11.25 a.m. When he arrived, he showed a campus guard, a fake research assistant identification guard, so that he could get a 40-minute parking space as he was delivering teaching equipment to a professor, which would explain the footlocker. He then went to the main building of the university and is believed to have entered the lower tower entrance between 11.30 and 11.35 a.m. If you only do one thing for your health, drink AG1. We're obsessed with making this product the absolute best. Packed with 75 ingredients, driven by science, and manufactured to meet the strictest quality standards. Start. This may have been timed to coincide with the 11.45 student class changeover, which would have provided more targets. When he entered, he found that the elevator did not work. An employee named Vera Palmer later stated that she thought he was a repairman, and she told him that the elevator had been turned off, so she turned the switch on to activate it. Whitman smiled as he thanked Palmer, stating, Thank you, ma'am. You don't know how happy that makes me several times. He reached the 27th floor and rolled the dolly with the footlocker up a final flight of stairs to a hallway leading to the observation deck. In a series of strange events, Whitman encountered the 51-year-old receptionist Edna Townsley inside the reception area. He then beat her into unconsciousness, splitting her skull with his rifle butt, and then dragged her still-breathing body behind the sofa. While doing so, a couple named Donald Walden and Cheryl Botts entered the room from the observation deck as he leaned over the couch. Botts later stated to the police that she and Walden believed Whitman was about to shoot pigeons, being that he was armed. She simply smiled and greeted Whitman, who smiled back and said, Hi, how are you? As if nothing had happened. Despite both Walden and Botts both seeing the dark blood stains on the carpet, and according to their statements, they both just assumed it was varnish or paint. After they left, Whitman barricaded the door leading to the lounge using Townsley's desk, two chairs, and a wastebasket. As he was entering the observation deck, a vacationing Texarkana, Arkansas family were leaving, and they tried to get past his hastily made barricade. One of the family members, 16-year-old Mark Gabor, tried to push the entrance to the staircase open, and Whitman fired with his shotgun, killing the boy and his 56-year-old aunt, Marguerite Lamport, and seriously wounding 19-year-old Michael Gabor and his 41-year-old mother, Mary. Whitman then repaired his barricade. The father, 48-year-old Michael Gabor Sr. and William Lamport were both uninjured, 
and ran from the stairwell before attempting to provide care for their family members. Then they ran for help. Mr. Gabor then met Vera Palmer exiting an elevator on the 27th floor. She was coming to the receptionist position to relieve Edna Townsley as it was her shift. Gabor told Palmer what had happened as she returned to the ground floor to get help. Whitman must have known that the alarm would be raised, so he completed the barricade repair and then fired a shot into Townsley's head to finish her off. At around 11.46 a.m., he placed his footlocker in the six-foot-wide observation deck and wedged the dolly against the door, which was the only avenue of approach. He then put on a white headband and placed his weapons around all four sides of the deck for immediate access. He was 231 feet above the plaza and began shooting at 11.48. The first person he shot was an 18-year-old, Claire Wilson, who was eight months pregnant, killing the child. She survived. All of his victims were between the ages of 17 and 64, both students and passers-by. Most of Whitman's victims were shot within the first 15 minutes of his shooting spree. Most were shot either on the campus or across the plaza on Guadalupe Street, which the locals called the drag, where shoppers entered the stores, cafes, and a couple of bookstores. There was some mass confusion, as many who heard the shots thought the noise was from a nearby construction site. Soon the word spread, and the response was rapid. Several ambulances were called, including hearses from a nearby funeral home and a bank delivery armored car drove into the line of fire to try and rescue the victims. Some bystanders braved the fire and went to assist the wounded and dying. Four minutes after he started shooting, the police arrived and located the source of the fire, and they maintained good suppressive fire, forcing Whitman to keep his head down. His only viewpoints were through the three large storm drains at the bottom of the four-foot-high observation deck walls. One of the first to arrive was 23-year-old Austin patrolman Billy Speed, who, along with another officer, took a position behind a columned stone wall. Whitman calmly shot through a six-inch space between the two columns and killed Speed with a chest shot. Whitman still had a rather clear field of fire, and targets were plentiful. One of his next victims was 29-year-old electrical repairman Roy Dell Schmidt, who was killed 500 yards from the tower, as well as a 30-year-old funeral director named Morris Harwin, who was seriously wounded as he hid behind the ambulance where he had transported people to the various hospitals. The police brought in sharpshooter Marion Lee, who boarded a champion Citabria, a two-seat light aircraft, hoping to get in close enough to get a clear shot as the light plane circled the tower. The problem was that it was a very hot day, and the thermals rising upward did not provide a stable platform buffeting the aircraft, but he stayed overhead as a distraction to interrupt Whitman's shooting and hopefully minimize casualties. Looking for a new home? Alan Crum, who treated teenager Alec Hernandez, who was wounded just outside the university bookstore that he managed. He went to the scene near the base of the tower, where Whitman did not have a clear line of sight, and met with Department of Public Safety agent William Cowan and Austin police officer Jerry Day. They went up the elevator, and Cowan gave Crum a rifle. Officer Ramiro Martinez 
was off duty that day and at home when he heard the news on the radio. So he arrived and joined Crom Day and Cowan, and they all met on the 26th floor and were greeted by officers Jack Rodman and Leslie Gieber. They had been talking with Mr. Gabber, who told them what happened to his family. Rodman and Gieber returned to ground level and told Vera Palmer to hit all elevator buttons, shut them down, while Martinez and Crum ascended and continued to the observation deck. Crum asked, Are we playing for keeps? Martinez responded, You're damned right where you are. To which Crum replied, Well, you better deputize me. Martinez replied, Consider yourself deputized. When they arrived, they found the bodies of Marguerite Laporte and Mark Gabor, and the wounded Mary Gabor and her son, Michael, wounded but coherent. He pointed and told them, he's up there. After treating Mary Gabor, they continued and found the dead Edna Townsley. Martinez and Crum were joined by McCoy, going left, after Martinez and Day flanking on Crum's right, with Crum covering the middle. Crum, hearing Whitman's footsteps, fired a shot to distract Whitman and gave the flanking officers more time. Whitman was spotted by Martinez, who fired all six shots from his service revolver, missing Whitman as McCoy broke cover and fired at Whitman's white headband, hitting him between the eyes with several pellets from his shotgun. McCoy then fired a second time, striking Whitman on his left side. Whitman fell to the ground, and Martinez then grabbed McCoy's shotgun and ran to Whitman and fired into Whitman's left arm at Point Blake range. All the while, the officers on the ground had been firing up into the tower, and they were unaware that Whitman was already dead. Crum broke out his white handkerchief as the police radioed down that it was over. In a sense of explainable irony due to the confusion, the on-scene reporters broadcast that the sniper was waving a white flag to surrender, which was not the case. By 3 p.m., the event was on national radio, and Whitman's father called in to tell them that it was, in fact, his son. He also gave them the names and addresses of his son, his wife, and his ex-wife. The police arrived at both locations to make notifications and found the bodies and the notes. Then the investigation started. Dr. Heatley came forward and told the authorities of his contacts with Whitman. The FBI and local police studied Dr. Heatley's notes. What they learned was that Whitman was a man full of self-loathing over the fact that he had twice struck his wife during their marriage and he feared that he would become like his father. Whitman apparently had an egocentric persona and he had constantly pushed himself to be better than others in every endeavor. The notes from Dr. Heatley also illustrated that he had been oozing with hostility throughout his session where Whitman had discussed fantasies of shooting random people from the observation deck of the University of Texas Tower. This would prove to be the sole occasion in which Whitman sought any professional help pertaining to the sources of frustration and pressure in his life. He was also under great mental strain due to his father calling him, often drunk, almost every day demanding that he convince his mother to return to Florida. During Whitman's autopsy, a pecan-sized tumor was located in the white matter above his amygdala. But the tumor was not connected to any sensory nerves. It was because of this tumor that some experts believed that he may have contributed to the violent impulses that Whitman had demonstrated over several years prior to the Texas Tower Massacre. 
The tragedy of that day is still felt in Austin, Texas. Whitman killed 17 people in total and wounded 31 others. A 17-year-old named Karen John Griffith died from her injuries one week later. And David Heber Gunby, shot from the tower at age 23, died from complications from his wound 35 years later, and his death was officially ruled a homicide. Whitman carefully chose his killing ground. He made sure that he had clear avenues of approach and sealed off his rear area, which also eliminated any chance of escape. But that was not his intention. He became the first so-labeled mass shooter in U.S. history. Unfortunately, he would not be the last.